Take a moment to consider the individuals in your life. Perhaps the coworkers you collaborate from day to day, the friends you reach out to every week, or the loved ones who hold a special place in your heart have flashed in your mind. At any given time, one in five of these individuals is struggling with a mental health concern. Maybe you know this for a fact, and someone or several people come to mind. And I know if you're listening right now, you're the type of person who doesn't want anyone, especially someone you care for, to have to struggle in silence. It's estimated that more than a half of us will struggle with a mental health problem at one point in our lives. And that data precedes the pandemic, by the way. So even if you end up being the lucky one, I'm doing air quotes, to beat the odds, that still means that many around you will face this common challenge. And I know, even sitting with that truth, it's a bit disheartening. It likely drops your mood a bit, and maybe you're even feeling a bit helpless. I get it. I've been there too. You might be questioning, what can I do? Is there anything? Really? And especially if you are in a mental health professional, you might be wondering, can I truly make a substantial difference? And as a mental health counselor, educator, and advocate, I need you to know that you absolutely can make a difference. The key is to become a mental health advocate. And in this episode, I'm going to share how you can do just that. Hi, I'm Dr. Shana. I'm a mental health counselor, educator, and advocate, and I would like to wish you a warm welcome to the Mental Wellness Practice. This is a place for you to learn about mental health, including key statistics, tips, and skills to help you cultivate mental well-being for yourself and for others. We all have mental health, and if we all felt empowered to improve our mental wellness, I truly believe the world would be a better place. So I created this space for you to access that opportunity. I hope that you're able to take away practical information from this episode and that you use that to plant seeds for the future. If you appreciate what you hear, follow, like, leave a comment, or share this episode with a loved one. For more educational content, connect with me on Instagram or Facebook at Dr. Shana. You can also check out the show notes for additional resources, including the best-selling self-love workbook and the newly released Designing Healthy Boundaries. Remember, this podcast is for informational purposes only, and if you're struggling with a mental health problem, please seek professional help. If you have questions, you're welcome to contact me at drshana.com. When you think of a mental health advocate, what comes to mind? Maybe you think about someone in the field, and that makes sense. Maybe you think about someone who's committed to improving mental health for themselves, for others, all of the above. That person is you, isn't it? I know it is, or truth be told, you would not be sharing this time with me right now. Your commitment to wanting to help is the key to being a mental health advocate. In my second decade in the mental health field, I have come to believe that people thinking that advocacy is a job for others is actually a huge part of the problem. There's a hopelessness and powerlessness in that sometimes. Yet, if we all felt empowered to play our parts, 
then we're more likely to make change, maybe even substantial, monumental change. So before we jump into any tips, I want you to give yourself some space to shift. Maybe you press play because you already see yourself as an advocate, and I think that is nothing less than awesome. Maybe you thought, oh, I just wanted to learn a thing or two to help. And well, here's the thing, my friend, that's the mindset of an advocate. So if that's a powerful new thought for you, give yourself a moment to step into that powerful space. Number one, invest in your own mental wellness. There is a ripple effect to you being well, because when you take care of yourself, you're better able to take care of others too. It's as simple as that, really. When you're well, you're also able to have an expanded ability to see when others may not be well. If you're unwell, you're likely to miss it for, first of all, yourself, but also for other people too. And you might not have the capacity to intervene, even if you suspect something for someone else, you might not have the energy to help. This can also be seen by others, the whole investing in your wellness thing and that ripple effect. And that's especially true for those of you who are in roles of influence, parents, managers, coaches, educators, even older siblings. There are people who look to you as an example of how to better take care of themselves. And sometimes that's even the subtle example of neglect. Because if you're showing that it's acceptable to minimize your well-being, you, even though you may not be intending to, may be showing that it's okay for them to do the same. So when you take the time to invest in your mental health, you're already advocating for mental wellness, playing a really important part in the process. And look at you, you have found yourself here, my goodness, in the mental wellness practice. So luckily there are a lot of resources that we've already covered to help you do just that. So if you're questioning how to invest in your own specific mental wellness, I suggest you head back to season one and listen to some of those episodes, stress, self-care, triggers, emotions, thoughts, how to find a therapist, you name it, we've covered the basics. So if that seems unfamiliar to you, that might be something helpful for you to review. Number two, build your mental wellness awareness. It is so important for us to be able to humbly self-check our own stigma. There are so many myths about mental health, and I have to confess to you, I believed a lot of them at one point in time. If you're not sure about the myths that exist about mental health, how pervasive they are, what they even sound like, look like, I have linked a resource in the show notes for you. Just know, after you pass that part, know that these lies can cause embarrassment, shame, guilt, and could start to build firm obstacles that cause people to avoid seeking any help, even though they may really need it. You can also help by being conscientious of the language you use and the messages that you convey about mental health. Yes, I am looking at the people who refer to weather as bipolar or laugh that you're OCD because you had to organize one thing. This is unhelpful, inappropriate language to use about mental health. It also minimizes people's real struggles and concerns. 
And while it might seem like just a small flippant statement, it can be a big deal and can pack a much deeper message for someone else. So be mindful about your language, about perpetuating stereotypes, devaluing others, and sharing inaccurate information. And if you hear any of this language, you know, say you didn't know what a mental health myth was, you read that resource, you realize, okay, now I know, then you're more empowered to intervene. If you hear that type of language, perhaps you have the opportunity then to start a polite dialogue to dispel that underlying stigma. Like I mentioned, I confess, I'll be the first person to confess that I've held a lot of those really inappropriate beliefs about mental health my whole life, especially before joining the field. I'm embarrassed to say that I believe them, but it's my truth. And I think about if someone had gently nudged me to think critically about what I was saying, why I was even saying it. I don't even know if there was a why, but to even question, what's the point of that statement? And are you thinking about others? Man, that could have made a difference for me. So something to think about for you and those around you. In addition to checking your stigma, it's also helpful to explore your mental health education. There are hundreds of mental health concerns, and please know you do not need to be well-versed in every single one. That's not even the best practice for practitioners, by the way. We have specializations for a reason. So please don't succumb to that pressure to need to expand your mental health awareness. That means you need to read the DSM from the front to the back. Oh, gosh, that's exhausting. And I'm not sure that is the best use of your time and energy. There is a wide mental health literacy movement, which I do value, but I also think it should come with a bit of a warning that it can be daunting. And there's a way that you can be best informed. And that is more of a quality over quantity approach, especially for those of you who are not in the field and are just starting out. One step at a time is way better than biting off more than you can chew, being overwhelmed, feeling disappointed, maybe even inept, and then stepping away from the power that you can have as a mental health advocate. So instead, I encourage you to think about what you may need to know. Maybe it's how to find help. Maybe it's how to find help without insurance finding low-cost resources. We're all different, so our gaps of mental health education will all be different. Give yourself the space to be honest about what area you'd like to learn more about. And I have a lot of respect for those of you who I know are going to say, I want to know about this, I want to know about this, I want to know about this, I want to know about this. I hear that. And again, one thing at a time, pace yourself. You're an advocate, not just for today, for tomorrow, but for the long run, the long raw. By the way, folks, the long raw is when you are so eager to use the word long run or long haul, and you just cannot decide. So fun fact, that's now what we are defining as the word raw. But I digress since this is not the podcast about me making up words that don't exist and trying to advocate for them. This is about being a mental health advocate. So with that tangent being said, I clearly had to get it out of my system. 
A common area that most people could benefit from improving is their ability to spot signs of a problem. Now, something to consider is that signs of a mental health problem will look different from problem to problem. And yes, I did just say that I don't think it's going to be helpful for you to learn about every single problem. So with that being said, I don't want you to get focused on trying to memorize symptoms either. I, that as well as an offshoot can be daunting. Trust your gut. Um, I think sometimes when we're getting so focused on stipulations of what symptoms look like or diagnostic criteria, first of all, we're putting too much on what may not be your job. If you are not a mental health professional, a counselor, social worker, psychologist, psychiatrist, like if this is not your realm, I don't want you to feel pressure to have to understand diagnosis that you get so intimidated by signs and symptoms. There are lots of people in your life that you know well, and you can tell when they're well and when something's off. So quite simply, the sign of a problem may just be that you can tell they're not being themselves. They are not being the best version of themselves. And that version, that, 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 that lack of themness, <laughs> there I go again, making words up, but I know, you know what I'm saying here. They're not being themselves. You maybe can't pinpoint it, but it's existing for a few days, a few weeks, a few months. That could be a sign of a problem too. So even if you're not able to pinpoint it, that's okay. That may not be your responsibility. Even being able to see that something's off, truthfully, that's more than most people do. Now, with that being said, friendly reminder that the problems are attached to the symptoms. So you may notice subtle changes in social engagement, substance use, daily habits. Those are some general ones. They're functioning at school or work. But there's also specific symptoms to look for or warning signs to look for that may be particular to anyone concerned. So if you're suspicious of that, then even familiarizing yourself with what that specific concern may be. So for example, expanding your knowledge can help you see signs such as hiding food or thinning hair and relating it to an eating disorder or repetitive behaviors and sleep dysfunction may be attributed to autism spectrum disorder. And if you already have open communication with someone who's lived with a mental health concern and choosing a path of mental wellness, keep in mind that beyond the DSM, beyond something that you can Google, beyond any symptom I can tell you right now, they can offer some helpful signs too if you have that comfortable relationship with them. They may be able to shed some light on additional signs and symptoms that might not be diagnostic criteria, but be, could be a sign that you could see if someone's experiencing that concern. If you don't know anyone, you have at least my example. <laughs> And I'll give you one because it comes up for me all the time is, you know, you hear about maybe irritability when it comes to generalized anxiety, but I think it gets so misunderstood and it, it is different from person, from person to person, but know that signs of someone 
being anxious. I'm just going to take full ownership. Signs of me being anxious may not really look like I am worried and panicking. That's a whole different genre of my anxiety. What someone is more likely to see is that I look damn rude. I really do. Objectively, I know that. But what a big difference if you know in your life someone is actually struggling with a mental health problem and this interpersonal experience may not look like an example of that or it may not be what we stereotypically associate with that but it is that could be an eye-opening moment for us to intervene i know it was eye-opening for me to make that reflection and realize "Ooh, i need to communicate this with people because people might just think that i'm being mean or careless or rude. And really, I'm just thinking, I'm really worried about 1 million things. Number three, be an active listener. People who are living with a mental health problem may be likely to comment on the concern that they're living with. The problem is no one's listening. I think we place this huge emphasis on looking for signs and symptoms as if it's something so covert and we have to hunt for it. But especially in our modern world, I've noticed this a lot, that people are actually saying, giving remarks, dropping hints, whether they're intending to or not. It's so clear, but no one's really listening. Now you might think, oh, I'm listening. I might get a little defensive. That's okay. Sit with that feeling. But here's the thing. Are you really listening? Are you listening with no devices, no distractions? Do you have the ability to really hear someone's experience and take the truth that they're sharing? And that's really hard for a lot of people. And don't worry. That's why counseling and therapy exists, because that's not everyone's responsibility. But I do think that a part of being a mental health advocate and being able to step in is just being able to listen. Now, let's say that you've noticed some signs and you're interested in bringing up a conversation to try to help. I encourage you to check yourself first. How would you feel if the tables were turned? How open are you to discussing your feelings or experiences with someone? Think of something that's a vulnerable topic for you. What would it be like if you were prompted to talk about this with someone? When we see signs that we're understandably eager to intervene for, we may then jump so fast, impulsively, innately, and especially if we care deeply about the person that is of concern. But sometimes this energy overshadows our empathy. Sometimes it's misinterpreted. Sometimes it's even received as aggressive, even though that's not what you intend. You know, it reminds me of when I was pregnant and everyone would touch me or comment on my body. And I would always think, you know, do you want me to touch you? (laughs) Can I just randomly touch an area of your body beyond your shoulder and hand? Like, is this okay? Can I randomly make remarks about your body? So, you know, sometimes we're so quick to act. And yes, that may even come from a, a nice, sweet place. But give yourself a beat before you intervene with anyone and try to think about how you would 
react in that way. At the very least, it'll cultivate compassion and maybe it can help you show some signs of areas that there may be gaps that you might want to fill either in yourself or seeking resources before you go into that conversation. And in that conversation, say you get past all of that, I want to heed a big warning to caution usurping the conversation. Yes, maybe you've waited quite some time to understand the present concern, consider how to address it with care, respect. You've gone through so much, really, and good on you for doing that. But you could also still give them the gift of having someone who cares to hear about their unique experience, someone who's careful to not bypass their unique story by making connections to other people's experiences, by immediately going into resources and action without just truly hearing them. You may even recognize a connection to your own experience, and you may want to share that to establish a connection, which is fair. However, sharing that prematurely may undermine their personal narrative. You may feel equipped with hotlines, books, a list of community providers, and all those, although those are excellent sources of support. Do you notice how many times I just string several words together and make up a word? Wow. Anyway, although those are several sources of support that are wonderful, it's important to take the time to thoroughly listen before jumping into dumping advice on any person. Resources are important, yes, but please don't undermine the power of having someone make space to be present, to listen, and to see them as who they are. It is truly a privilege to have someone share the intimate details of their healing process, so be present and listen before making any steps. Number four, talk about mental wellness. If we have proactive conversations about mental wellness, it makes it much easier to have challenging conversations about mental illness. In episode one of this podcast, we explored the stigma shattering semantics of mental illness, wellness, and health. You know, I wonder what it would look like if a team or a family or a group of friends listened to that podcast and explored their thoughts together. You can also find local meetings in your area to talk about mental health and understand what's the difference between mental health and mental wellness and mental illness. Maybe you have a local mental health association, a local group for the National Alliance on Mental Illness, and I will go ahead and link that in the show notes too if you're curious if there are one of those in your area. Now let's come back to the idea that you notice signs and you're contemplating having a conversation with someone because you're trying to be supportive of their mental wellness. Now we already covered that listening is a big part of that and also one of the best ways to help someone who you know might be experiencing a mental health problem is to simply ask how you can help. I think a lot of times when we're worried about someone's ability to 
be emotionally regulated and think clearly. We go to the worst case scenario of thinking they're not thinking clearly, so they cannot possibly think clearly. They cannot possibly think for themselves. And yes, there are some crises situations that that may be true. And many times, especially if we, especially if we, mm, fun word, fun, not real word, but especially if we know that we are intervening soon, then in that situation, we can definitely ask someone, trust their being the expert of themselves. That doesn't make sense. Trust them being the expert of themselves. Hmm. There's some grammatical issues there, but you know, flow with me here. You get what I mean. We're all the experts in ourselves. And when we lose that autonomy, that usually doesn't feel good. And that's a big risk that we push sometimes when we're not actively having healthy conversations about mental health. So then the conversation about how can we help you also becomes, let me tell you how to help you because you don't know any better. And even saying that out loud just feels icky. And I find that a bit ironic because I think a lot of people think that that's what counseling sounds like, right? Is that my job is to just tell people what to do. And uh, spoiler alert, it's not. And um, that's such a misuse of power. So again, there are maybe some really loving intentions in all of that, but telling someone how they need to care for themselves may not be helpful and it may not be necessary. So asking them what you can do and how you can help not only helps them to feel seen, but it also empowers the individual to take charge in their journey. Yet it balances out and keeps them aware that you are a source of support. Number five, create community. A huge stigma-fueled oversight that stands in the way of mental wellness is the belief that mental health is an individual-level problem and solely an individual-level concern. Lack of awareness and resources causes us to turn away, ignore, overlook, judge, shame, embarrass, and ultimately exacerbate conditions because of this. But the reality is relationships are a huge component of mental well-being. Connections can play a huge role in prevention, early intervention, and crisis management. You know, it's funny to me that as a counselor who emphasizes self-love, I'm often met with the whole self-love is selfish misunderstanding. And I'm going to try to just briefly put my toes on the soapbox and come right off. But here's the thing. If you want to know what is selfish, it's an individualistic view of mental health. And it's, you know, that's, listen, that's, that's what it is. That's selfish. It's, that's not accurate. Your mental wellness is your responsibility, but it cannot happen alone. You can be doing the best you can for your mental health, but going out into the world, into harmful environments, continuously facing challenging connections, that affects your mental health too. So mental health is your responsibility. And if we all took our mental wellness 
into our own responsibility, then we're naturally beginning to cultivate a more communal approach that supports mental wellness. A community approach to mental wellness opens our lines of communication. We can share resources, actively listen to one another, and have those helpful conversations to offer support. Being a mental health advocate also involves an assessment of your community resources. Are they available in your community? Do you know where to go, who to reach out to, how you can seek help? Now, the most common example I think we often think about is, do you know how to find a good therapist in your area? And we covered that thoroughly in episode nine. So if you have a question mark there, I do suggest you head back. But there's other forms of gaps too. And there's other ways to fill that beyond individual, group, or family therapy. Maybe you notice that there's a need for mental health education. So you help to organize a workshop. Maybe you team up with a local university or a mental health organization to host a webinar or an informational series or even a get to know the counselor series. Perhaps you create a fundraiser recognizing that there's a need for low cost services and access in your community. And if it's accessible to you, maybe you hire a mental health consultant to come in and inform methods in the different spaces that you're in. Maybe, I'm thinking most notably, the workplace. Throughout this episode, we shared a variety of different things that you can do to become and lean into the role of being a mental health advocate. There were a variety of ideas that were suggested to you, but just to summarize quickly some practical guidance that you can use, thinking about how you care for your mental wellness is a really important way to start recognizing the ripple effect it might have on others and who it affects, that can be helpful too. In terms of your mental health awareness, self-assess. Think about what you know, how you've learned those things, and what you want to know, and how you hope to learn those things. Where can you turn? Who can you speak to? What can you look into? And then lastly, there's that community checklist. Where can you find resources? Are they affordable? Are they affirmative? Do they align with the needs of not only you as a member of the community, but with the mental health needs of your community too? Thank you so much for joining me today in the mental wellness practice. Today you tuned in because you were curious to know how to support someone else's mental health. And we learned that the key is to becoming a mental health advocate. And under that, we learned that you have already played a big part of that just by clicking play. So thank you so much for playing your part. I know you can make a huge difference. I hope that you found this episode helpful. And if so, don't forget to follow, like, leave a comment, or share the episode with a loved one. For more educational content, you can connect with me on Instagram or Facebook at Dr. Shana. You can also check out the show notes for additional resources, including the best-selling self-love workbook or the newly released Designing Healthy Boundaries. Remember, this podcast is for informational purposes only. And if you're struggling with a mental health problem, please seek professional help. 
you have any other questions, you're always welcome to reach out to me at drshana.com. Thanks for learning and growing with me. Thank you.